Well, let me ask you, how important is perspective? According to 1 Peter, it is essential. It's essential. Do you know those pictures, those posters, they were popular when I was a kid, made up of tiny squares. Usually every square is its own little picture. But it makes up one big picture. A different picture, perhaps, than all the little pictures that put together to make up this bigger picture. And usually you can only make out the bigger picture when you stand back. If you got very close and looked at a square or two or three, they're interesting, they're, they're there, that's art, it's something. But when you stand back, you see something you didn't see close up. We need perspective. According to 1 Peter, perspective is essential. I'll remind you once again this week that Peter writes this letter to Christians who were surprised by suffering, surprised by persecution. They thought it was a strange thing, and some were shaken in their faith by it. So Peter writes to them to help them gain perspective. And he starts by reminding them of their identity. In those potent words in verse 1, he says they are elect exiles. Elect, they're chosen by God. Exiles, they've been cast aside, ostracized from families, ostracized from their society around them, even ostracized from the economy that they were used to working in and trading with. They've been maligned and mocked and marginalized for the sake of Christ. In some cultures and times, it's much worse than that. It's killing, being burned alive, tortured. Even in our own culture here in the U.S. in the 21st century, there is some of the maligning, some of the mocking, some of the marginalizing that Peter's readers were facing. Some, not much, but some, yes. So in every age and in every culture, what Christians constantly need is perspective because even when there isn't any kind of persecution, there's still suffering. There's still so many things that distract us and cause us to look down at a, a square, an hour in time, a day, a, a single thing. We need perspective. So over the first dozen verses, then, Peter unpacks their election, their salvation, their privileges in Christ, again, to help them gain perspective, to give them the big picture. So he sketches out the big picture of their personal salvation in verses 3 through 9, their personal salvation. But then verses 10 through 12 are verses for today. He sketches out the big picture of the plan of salvation, First, he was dealing with their salvation in personal terms. You were known before the foundation of the world, right? You were set apart by the Spirit. You have Jesus' blood sprinkled on you. You've been born again to a living hope. You have an inheritance now. That's all personal salvation in the first nine verses. But then it turns to the big picture of the plan of salvation in verses 10, 11, and 12. It reads like this. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace 
that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them, to those prophets, that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. What Peter's doing here in these verses is he's weaving his readers, and us by extension, into the fabric of God's great saving plan. From Old Testament promises to New Testament fulfillment to their own experience of those New Testament realities and by extension to our own present-day experiences of God's grace. So again, let me say, this is meant as a corrective to thoughts and feelings which are simply locked into the here and now. Peter wants to say, you're saved. And that's the most important thing in the world. He wants to say, you're saved with a salvation that goes from eternity's past and reaches into eternity's future. He wants to say to them, you're saved You're saved with a salvation. That's a grand story. You're part of that grand story of redemption moving from promise to fulfillment. You say, well, what's so great about that? What's so great about being a Christian? What's so great about being saved? Especially if there's a higher probability of being cast aside, being ignored, being mocked or marginalized, overlooked or dismissed or even jailed or killed. What's so great about salvation? Well, I think Peter shows us five things about salvation which are indeed great in a big picture sort of way. The first, salvation was foretold by the Spirit and prophets. It was foretold by the Spirit and prophets. Verse 10 begins, concerning this salvation, which clearly points us backwards to what came before. He's talking about the salvation he's been unpacking for those first nine verses there. But now as he moves forward, he's going to move in a different angle. He's going to take us back to the Old Testament. And he's saying to them, salvation is so great because it's part of a long, long history Your salvation is so great because it's part of a miraculous history. Prophets prophesied. Concerning this salvation, the prophets prophesied. They foretold. Their writings, verse 11 says, predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Hundreds of years before Jesus' birth, Prophets and other parts of the Old Testament before that, they pointed ahead, telling of one to come, telling of an age to come, where God did something, where God will do something in an unparalleled way. I guess more accurately, accurately we could say the prophets themselves didn't predict anything. It was the Spirit of Christ in them, the Holy Spirit. 
It was the Spirit of Christ in them who predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So who wrote the Bible? Prophets or the Holy Spirit? The answer is, of course, yes. There's some important things about the, about the Bible, the nature of the Bible implied here. One of those is what we call dual authorship, that mysteriously men wrote down things that they were sometimes told directly, especially Old Testament prophets or Moses, but sometimes they wrote down things that they thought of. They thought they thought of it. They thought it was good. They wrote it down for someone else's good. And yet, behind the scenes on a cosmic level, God was superintending what would get written down to very letters, down to conjunctions and prepositions. So we say the Bible is inspired. It doesn't mean it's inspiring, though that's true. It means it's God-breathed. Even though prophets are part of the equation, God spoke through prophets. Therefore, it's inerrant. God overrides any dumbness on the part of a prophet to say something he shouldn't. Somehow, mysteriously, they write, he writes, but in the process, there are no mistakes. He speaks and speaks without error. So it's accurate, it's true, and right in all that the Bible affirms. It's authoritative then. It's not the mere words of men. And it's divinely intentional too. The Bible is not just showing us that God knows the future. The Bible isn't just telling us that the Bible is true. Here Peter's telling us that God is bringing about a plan to pass slowly but surely as the Spirit hundreds of years before Christ was predicting things about Christ through prophets and doing it in a way that was beyond their full comprehension. So one, salvation was foretold by the Spirit and the prophets. That's what makes salvation great. It's part of a long history We also need to say, though, secondly, salvation was studied and awaited by the prophets. Because it's part of a long history, there's some length to it. So in verse 10, Peter says, The prophets searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ, and the subsequent glories. If God's plan is like a jigsaw puzzle, it's like God would give two or three puzzle pieces to a prophet at a time. And they'd look at it and go, hmm, okay. And they could see something developing here. They couldn't see the whole picture. But they could see this is somebody. They could see another time was coming, another age was coming, another person who's coming that's better than the ones that have come before that have led God's people. You've got an Abraham, you've got a Moses, you've you've got a Joshua, you've got a David. They're all good, but all imperfect. And even the best of the guys of the Old Testament, they die. And usually the guy that comes after them isn't as good. What the prophets could see was that someone 
is coming who's different than these. He's the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15. He's the lion of Judah. He's a prophet like Moses. He'll be a king. It's David's seed. And David's seed forever. He's eternal. And yet he's born of a virgin. And yet he's God himself. He'll be the ruler of the nations. And yet he'll be a servant and a suffering servant. They could see these two things emerging with the puzzle pieces God had given him. Sufferings, glories. In one person, there's going to be sufferings and glories. So Isaiah 53 talks about the suffering servant. Psalm 22 talked about the cross in a typological way through King David. But the Bible also talks about glories again and again with this one who's going to come and in this age to come. There'll be glories. He'll rule the nations perfectly, Psalm 2 talks about. It'll be like light and glory universally, Isaiah 60 says. Sufferings and glories. Oh, there is much that the Old Testament prophets knew. Much they could see. But they didn't know the who or the when. You see that in verse 11? Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ was in them indicating about the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. They didn't know exactly the who of the Messiah would be. They didn't know exactly the when of the Messiah. And they didn't know how how all the circumstances fit together, how the pieces all fit one with another. And so they searched. They searched and inquired carefully, inquiring. Notice three words between the end of verse 10 and end of verse 11. They searched and inquired carefully, inquiring. That's redundant. That's overkill, isn't it? Unless you're trying to prove a point. They really dug deep. They really worked hard. This is something behind the scenes from what we see in the Old Testament. We didn't see prophets trying to figure stuff out all over the place. Some did. Many did. And so they wanted to know more than they were given for that time. They knew that what they wrote down was for another time. That's one thing they did know. That a lot of the stuff is bigger than now. It has to be for later. It's too big for these days. You see that in verse 10 where Peter says, The prophets prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, writing of first century Christians. In verse 12 It's more explicit. Peter says it was revealed to the prophets they were serving not themselves but you. Another window into Old Testament prophet life that we don't see so much in the Old Testament. They were conscious of the fact that what they were doing was serving another generation. Maybe many generations later as it turned out. You notice that word serving in verse 12. It's the word for deacon. They were deacons of prophecy serving 
the generations to come, especially those in the time of Christ and after and even till this day. Now when it says that this grace was not theirs, it's to be yours, and when it says that they weren't serving themselves but you, that doesn't mean that there wasn't grace in their time period or in the Old Testament. There was grace in the Old Testament. What this means here is that the specific things related to the one to come, who he is and what he'll be like and when it is, that stuff was for another day to be revealed to Peter's readers and to us. That's what they understood. It's not that they didn't know anything of the Old Testament. It's not that they didn't know anything of God's grace. God saved in a more general way through faith in his grace. Not through the name of Jesus Christ as it's revealed in the New Testament They knew someday that these things would not only be revealed, but fulfilled. That's the third thing that's so great about salvation. It's been revealed and fulfilled in Jesus. It has been. We know this. We know from our standpoint, it's past tense. And as Peter writes 1 Peter, it's past tense. Christ had come already. He says in verse 20, he's been manifest. Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you. So in Jesus' day, it was increasingly clear through his teaching, and then even more so in his death, and then even more so after the resurrection, it was increasingly clear who the person was. But the time had come, how the puzzle pieces fit together. It was increasingly clear what it meant that the Christ would suffer and then be glorified. Really, in a sense, this is what the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, that's what they're all about. People coming to see he's the one. Some see it right away. Simeon. In Luke 2, he's a righteous man. And it says there he'd been waiting for the consolation of Israel, the comfort. He knew something was coming. He's talking there about the age to come of the Messiah. And he'd been told that he wouldn't die until he had laid eyes on the Christ, the Messiah. So when Mary and Joseph bring the baby to the temple and Simeon sees the baby, instantly he prays, Lord, you can now take your servant home to heaven, for my eyes have seen your salvation. But not all got it as easily and as quickly as Simeon did. Think of Peter's own experience of coming to understand not just who Jesus is, but what he came to do and how he would do it. Listen to Matthew 16. This is right after Peter makes that wonderful, bold confession of who Jesus is. Remember, Jesus asks Peter, who do you say that I am? Rather, he says, who do people say that I am? Peter says, well, some say You're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah or other prophets. And then Jesus asks, well, who do you say that I am? 
And Peter says, I say that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Messiah. I say you're the one. And right after that, get this, we read these words. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day, be raised. He began telling them this. But Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he said to him, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But then Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Right after saying, well done, Peter. You confess I'm the Christ. He says, get out of here, Satan. You don't get it. You're not connecting the dots. You're not seeing it. And of course, what did Peter do at Jesus' arrest? I mean, here's the end of the story, right before the crucifixion. And Peter still doesn't get it, even though Jesus has said, I'm going to suffer in Jerusalem and I'll be raised on the third day. It happens again and again before this. And yet in John 18, the soldiers come to the garden to take Jesus under arrest and Peter pulls out a sword. He struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. He surely wasn't going for the ear. And yet Jesus once again rebuked Peter and said, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? The cup of wrath, the cup of judgment? Am I not supposed to bear the judgment? That's the plan. Sufferings. Even after the resurrection, an angel has to remind the disciples of all this. An angel has to say, he told you about all this. Why are you so surprised? In Luke 24, the angel says, remember how he told you many times? While he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Then they remembered his words. Not once they heard the resurrection, after the angel said, he told you. Also in Luke 24 is the story of the two men who are walking on the road to Emmaus. They know of Jesus' death, perhaps they even saw it. They've also heard a strange rumor, they think, that Jesus is risen. But they don't get it. And even as Jesus walks alongside them, for some reason they don't, They don't recognize him. They don't see that it's him. They don't get who it is who's talking to them. And there's only disenchantment. They say, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Once again, Jesus rebukes them. He says, oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. This was in the prophets. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things then enter into his glory? Doesn't that sound very familiar? Suffering, 
then glory. That's what the prophets spoke of. That's what Jesus explained to these men in Luke 24. And that's exactly what Peter preached once he finally got it. He preached this in his famous Pentecost sermon in Acts 2 and Acts 3. You read this toward the end of it. What God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. And then Peter goes on to talk more about this Jesus, whom heaven must receive glories until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Patient prophets prophesying, predicting of a time not of their own, a time to come. It's now here, Peter says. It's now manifest. And so now, hopefully, it's clear what Peter means when he says the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Notice both of those are plural. Sufferings, glories. So the sufferings of Christ are primarily his death upon the cross for our sins, but it also has to include the sufferings leading up to it, the mockery, the torture, the false accusations, because all that stuff is in the prophets as well. And subsequent glories. Again, it's plural. So we can think of several things. Primarily his resurrection but also his ascension to glory. Also his exaltation to the right hand of the throne of God. And of course, his return one day, which is still to come, the second coming, we call it, which is often in Scripture described in terms of glory. He'll come with glory. It'll be a day of glory when his glory is revealed. So that has to be part of the subsequent glories as well. But many of them are already here. They've already come. And a time of clarity has come. We're privileged for that. Fourth, the salvation is so great. This long-awaited salvation is so great because it's now preached and it's ours. Verse 12 says, The things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit from heaven. It's now been preached. And if received, then it's yours. We not only know what the prophets didn't know, we have it. Their prophecies were about us, if you're in Christ with me. What unparalleled privilege this time is, and we are as a people. Jesus said this in Matthew 13. He said, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see. They didn't see it. To hear what you hear, and they didn't hear it. Oh, you can just see the prophets scraping, inquiring, investigating, digging, connecting dots, trying to put things together. It's beyond their comprehension. They didn't get the time, the person, the how. 
And Jesus says to those who laid eyes on him in his earthly ministry, they so wanted to see what you see. They so wanted to hear what you hear. Jesus says that everyone who's in Christ, everyone like us today, every Christian, is more privileged than John the Baptist. Listen to this in Matthew 11. He says, truly, I say to you, among those born of women thus far, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. He's the best. John the Baptist is the best so far. And yet, the one who's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. How? Well, because John the Baptist didn't get some stuff. He didn't see it all. He didn't live to know about the crucifixion, to know about the resurrection. He knew that Jesus was the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. He knew a lot. But even in this very chapter where Jesus says that John is the greatest that's ever been born so far, that chapter began by John the Baptist in prison sending his disciples to Jesus to ask that famous question, are you the one or should we wait for another? I think we'll see John in heaven. I think he did come to realize that Jesus was the one. But the least disciple of Christ today is in a better position to understand God's redemptive plan than the greatest and the latest prophet of that old era. It's an unparalleled, unprecedented time. We, greater than the best and the last of the old prophets. And us, Gentiles. Do you notice how Peter seemed to emphasize you and yours? Look at verse 10. The grace that was to be yours. Verse 12. The, the prophets were not serving themselves, but you. This was good news that was preached to you. Who's he writing to? Mostly Gentiles. So there's a difference from prophets to Peter's readers in time, in era, but also in ethnicity. Peter's tying them back in to the whole string of God's people. Do you see that? That's something that the prophets foresaw. They foresaw that it would be for another time, and perhaps they saw clearly that it would be for another people. But that wasn't always so. Even though they saw that it would be like that, in their own time, it wasn't always like that. So in Ephesians 2, Paul says, Remember that you Gentiles, you were once separated from the Messiah. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. What if you weren't born this side of the cross? 
Oh, you, you might have been a Rahab, one of the Gentiles who believed in Yahweh God. And we read of her in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. You may have been like the majority of the others among the nations surrounding Israel. And you would have made up your own gods. You would have mocked that group over there, that small, pathetic group over there who says they believe in a God, but they can't actually show me him. I'm used to seeing a God held up and visible and you can touch it. What do you mean you serve a God, a big God, the God? You can't even see him. Now we know, now in Christ we've been brought near through faith. Through faith, by the preaching of God's word. Notice that in verse 12. Through those who preached the good news to you. They just delivered it. They announced it. Oh, the Old Testament prophets went clawing and scratching, looking for more to see who, when, how. And then in this new covenant era, God reveals himself so clearly and powerfully and gloriously that it can just be delivered, announced as information and received. Is it yours? Have you received this? It's preached to you right now. If you've never heard that Jesus died for sins so that we might be forgiven and right with our God, you're hearing it now. You're hearing now for the first time why there had to be one who suffered and had glories to follow, he suffered in our place. There's purpose for the suffering. Would you receive it today if you haven't? Call on him. Be saved. What's so great about salvation is that it's ours if we receive it. It's been revealed, handed to us on a silver platter by the Holy Spirit through preaching. Notice the Holy Spirit's involved here too in the preaching of God's word, verse 12. So we've got the Spirit involved in writing the Old Testament. We've got the Spirit involved, of course, in illuminating the New Testament message. And also we've got the Holy Spirit involved in the preaching of the message. Oh, and don't forget verse 2. We also have the Holy Spirit involved in being set apart unto belief and faith. In the blood of Christ. Salvation's great. Fifth, salvation is so great because it's still celebrated and pondered by angels. It's celebrated and pondered by angels. That's how this section ends. These are things into which angels long to look. Literally, it's straining to see. They're looking down with strained and squinted eyes at what's happening. It's not that these angels don't know about salvation. It's not that we know today a whole lot more than they do about this stuff. No, they're, they're bright chaps. They're angels. There were some who were the means of the revelation of Old Testament information, right? They spoke at times. They revealed things in the Old Testament, so they know about this stuff. They announced Jesus' birth, and they were there to clarify to those confused, astonished disciples at the empty tomb. 
there to tell them what this meant and why he's risen and that he's risen. So angels know a whole lot, but, but they long to look into these things, which means they want to know more. They want to ponder this more. It may be fair to say that this is heaven's angels' pastime to ruminate on and rejoice in God's redemptive plan to see more and talk about more, celebrate more of what he already has done and what he is doing. And they also want to see more of what's still to come. They want to watch the climax of salvation's plan play out in real life. I think they know probably better than we do about what's to come. But they don't know all of it. And even what they do know, they want to see it. They want to see it happen. They're gazing, squinting, straining, looking down and longing to see what's to come and what is even now. So here, once again, this verse gives us a peek into what's happening in a cosmic and heavenly realm And this isn't the only place we get something like this in the New Testament. We get a few other peaks about what angels think of God's plan. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4 that part of God's design in this whole thing of apostles, why why do you come up with those? Why do they exist? Why are they important? Well, Paul says they're a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. One of those things stands out as strange to me. I get the, a spectacle to the world, sure. A spectacle to men in general, sure. Apostles and their missions are spectacles to angels. It's wild. And Jesus told us that heaven's angels rejoice when even one sinner repents. Oh, they know who's in the Lamb's book of life, Probably. But to see it play out, to see one turn from hardness to repentance, from doubt to faith, they have great joy before God when that happens, Luke 15 tells us. So let me summarize and apply these three verses just a a little bit more as we close this up. Peter writes to suffering Christians to give them perspective. The future may be unknown in part. Tomorrow may be unknown in part. But the most important things now and tomorrow and forever are known. They're fixed. They're sure. They're part of a really old plan with a grand architect behind it. And we Christians, in this era, this age, we are privileged. We're privileged despite any suffering and persecution that might happen, small or great. We're in a privileged time, and we're part of a privileged people. In this time, there's a scope of God's redemptive plan that was broader than before. Oh, that was the plan all along. Don't get me wrong. But I'd rather live this side of the cross than on the other So now those in Christ, regardless of heritage, those formally cast aside or kept out, 
are tied in to the solidarity of the Old Testament people of God. Now, that book is our book. It's not the Jewish part. It's our part. We're tied into the story. We Christians are privileged to be handed this truth on a silver platter. It's just announced. It doesn't have to be figured out. Oh, I know for many of us, our conversion experience was a wrestling time, right? It took some figuring out. We asked a lot of questions. We did this in the Bible. Maybe you read a book. Maybe you prayed, God, show up. Just reveal yourself to me. That's one angle. The other angle is this news is simply announced. Our faith isn't in a manual of morals. Our faith isn't in an experience. It's in a historical event. Our hope lies in what Jesus did on that Easter weekend. Death, burial, and resurrection. That's our hope. That's what is announced to us. That's what we announce to others. And in this time, we are more privileged than grand old prophets and big old angels. It's that good. And that has booing power. That should buoy us up in our circumstances, which are hard. Salvation is ours, and it's sure, and it's solid. But this passage also tells us that suffering shouldn't be surprising because Christ's suffering, even unto death, shouldn't have been surprising. Our suffering is no strange thing because Christ's suffering was no strange thing. That was the plan all along. And it was for our good and for our only hope. Suffering's first, glories after that. That's the divinely ordained order of things, generally speaking. Any gospel account that begins with glories first and glories later doesn't get what Peter is after here. Doesn't get why Jesus came and why he had to suffer. Suffering first, then glories, was the order for prophets. They suffered for the truth. They served a generation that wasn't their own. Suffering first, then glories to follow. That's, that's part A and part B of the Jesus story. And it's the same for us too. Like Peter said in verse 6, we suffer for a little while. Glories to follow. We have an inheritance reserved in heaven for us. We only await now the day when our faith results in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. So we can now set our hope fully on that grace that will be revealed to us when Jesus returns. And by the way, the very same glories that followed Christ's sufferings will be ours as well. Resurrection, one day ascension, and exaltation with him. Boy, we're privileged. Peter encourages these sufferers 
And by extension, he encourages all sufferers here today who are in Christ with the gospel. The gospel is enough. It's not kindergarten and then you move on one day to calculus. We need the gospel. We grow in the gospel. We stand only on the gospel. And Peter encourages them in their suffering and us in our suffering by pointing us to the scriptures. Doesn't he do that? Look, look at the scriptures. Prophets of old. What people have preached to you now. The scriptures are trustworthy. They are about Christ and his salvation. And they are to be searched. We don't search like the Old Testament prophets searched. Because some of this is just handed to us, right? It's just declared. It's just announced. We don't have to figure some things out that they tried to figure out and couldn't. Oh, but we can learn from these prophets and their example here. They searched the scriptures diligently and they waited eagerly and patiently. They had eyes on the horizon of what's to come. We can learn from the example of angels. In some ways, it would sound like Peter is saying we're better off than the angels. It's almost like Peter is saying the angels have a little bit of holy jealousy because whatever they know about salvation, we experience salvation, and they don't. The example of the angels, though, that we can follow as we can long to look into God's plan through his word, long to look into his plan as it unfolds in that person becoming a Christian, this one growing in grace. We can follow the angel's example and longing to see the plan unfold even more, saying with John at the end of our Bibles, come, Lord Jesus, come. We want you to come. That's how we, remember the language of verse 8 last week? That's how we love him. Through his word, with eyes longing and looking, we love him, we believe in him, and we rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. These are lofty things. Through faith in Jesus, by his word, by his spirit at work, these are ours.